I've got two glasses of water under here. And there's a note on one side saying leader and a note on the other side saying speaker. So I've got to remember to go to this side now. <laughs> I don't know if they put something different in this one, but perhaps they do. If you have your Bibles, or if it can be brought up on the overhead, that'll be fine. But turn to Matthew chapter 21. Chapter 21 and verse 12. Yes. Chapter 21, verse 12. Just read two verses for now. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. If you know your Bible or you know anything about this story, you will know that on this very day, Jesus had ridden on the donkey into Jerusalem to the praises and the calls of Hosanna, as if the crowds were welcoming their king. But as soon as Jesus got off the donkey, he entered the temple area. And what did he find? We'll find out. It would be almost impossible to overstate the significance of the Jerusalem temple to the Jews of this period. It was not only the focus of the nation's religious life, but it was a symbol of national identity and pride. And history was long and checkered. It all started some 1400, 1500 years before Jesus. when God had called Moses to lead the Jews out from captivity in Egypt into the wilderness of Sinai on the way to their promised land. Which of course today we would recognise as Israel. But that's another story. You know, at first there had just been a humble, what they called the tent of meeting. It literally was just a tent in the desert. As the Jews wandered, the tent was there, pitched outside the camp, where God regularly 
descended in a cloud of glory. Don't worry, it's not as long as it looks. And God would descend in a cloud of glory to meet with Moses, represented his people. And then on Mount Sinai, where they were in the desert, Moses was called to the, to the mountain at Sinai to receive the instructions from God about a more permanent structure. which became the tabernacle and detailed instruction about its priesthood and its offering. And it was detailed as well. You can find that out as you read through Exodus, Leviticus and those books of the law. But the tabernacle was a portable construction, a sort of travelling temple where they could carry it from place to place as they wandered in the desert for 40 years. But for 40 years they had to strictly obey the rules concerning the tabernacle that God had laid down. And it also went with the Ark of the Covenant. It signified to the people that God was with them, that God was there leading them with the cloud during the day for shelter and the fire at night for warmth. It signified God's mercy and grace to these people, having brought them out from slavery, leading them to the promised land. More important than that, leading them as his chosen people. Not because they were special. Those of you that know the story will know that he chose them simply because he loved them. And then when the people did eventually enter the promised land after many ups and downs, the tabernacle was set up at a town called Shiloh where the priests exercised their ministries and the people came to pray and offer sacrifices up right up until the time of King David. And then it was he that decided that he would make Jerusalem his capital city. And it was there that eventually the Ark of the Covenant was placed. But it was still only the tabernacle. David planned in his mind to build his temple for God. But God had our ideas. No, it's not you, David, but your son Solomon will build this temple for me. And the temple of Solomon was a jewel of design and craft, gorgeous and costly. But of course, its real value laid in the presence of God. And if you've got your Bible, you turn to 1 Kings and chapter 8. And Solomon, I don't know if you've ever read Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. <clears throat> but what a magnificent prayer it is. But 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. 
When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. They couldn't work. The glory of the Lord filled the place. Solomon had built this temple, magnificent temple, all under the instruction of God. And there it stood in Jerusalem. Could be seen by everybody. And it became the centre of Jewish worship, the centre of sacrifice, the centre of prayer. It was really their life. And the Jews didn't think that they could live without the temple. In fact, you find that in Psalm 137, isn't it? By the rivers of Babylon. They didn't think that because they'd been taken out of Jerusalem and away from the temple that they could sing, how can we sing our songs in a strange land? becoming God chose these people as his representatives on earth but they were becoming very in and the temple was the only place where they felt they could actually meet with God they didn't accept and didn't believe that the God who was the God of all the earth and all the heavens could be worshipped anywhere but that's how important the Jerusalem temple came to be to the Jewish nation. But it was never meant to be like that at all because also in 1 Kings chapter 8, in verse 22, yep, verse 22, Solomon's prayer of dedication, we'll read just a bit of it. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept a promise to your servant David, by my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hands you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him, when you said you will never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, O Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. And just over the page, wonderful, in chapter 9 and verse 3, Then the Lord said to Solomon, I have heard the prayer and the plea that you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built, by putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will always be there. 
I will always be there. I have heard your prayer. The temple was to be the place to which all Israel gathered and could turn, and the Gentile who sought the Lord of Abraham, a house of prayer for all peoples. And if we go back to chapter 8 and verse 41, we read, It's for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. For men will hear of your great name in your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards his temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Solomon, who built the temple specifically under God's introduction, was asking God to welcome the Gentile, the foreigner, the alien, that he would come and worship God in this temple also. Because this temple was built for all men. But the Jews covered themselves with it. And unfortunately, it was the temple that they came to worship in the end. Because the God of the temple had been replaced by the temple of God. And how easy that is for us, even in this day and age, to get caught up basically worshipping idols. And that's exactly what the Jews had done. They'd forgotten that this was a living God. They'd gone down the road as, uh, more or less as the, as the same as their the other religions of the day. The temple suddenly became the centre of their attraction. The temple became the place that they worshipped rather than the God of the temple who had set it up. But that's not surprising, you know, because since the fall, the world has always been under the law of sin. You can't avoid it. We're born in sin. We live in a sinful world. I can always remember, um, I think it was an example that Charles Price gave. He was talking about aerodynamics. And he said it's like a plane taking off. <clears throat> don't want to put anyone off flying. But it's like a plane taking off because as soon as those tyres leave the concrete, gravity wants to pull it down to earth. And no matter how, if it wasn't ordered, the, 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 the law that has overcome it, the law of our aerodynamics and the thrust of the wings that keep it up in the air, but gravity, if the wings fell, the thing go. But gravity pulled it down right away. And even when it's up, well, I don't know, however high they go, it seems a long way up. And, uh, you know, it's like that, all the way along. You're the aeroplane, and the law of sin is trying to drag you down. It's never, it's never away from you. <clears throat> it's there. It's a fact that we have to, have to accept. And what does it say? The three, the three words, justification, 
That's saved from sin's penalty. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you accepted him as your Lord and Saviour, you are justified. You will not be judged on your sin anymore because he has been judged for your sin and your wrongdoing. So in God's eyes, you are now perfect. Then we have sanctification. That's a good church word, isn't it? Sanctification. But that means you're saved from sin's power. God has given you the strength to overcome sin, just like the aerodynamics. But you see, it won't be until Jesus comes again that you will receive glorification, which means you will be taken out of sin's presence. So you will no longer have to fight the good fight. You will be free from sin's presence. So what is sin about? Somebody said if the devil, if the devil was to die tonight, you would still sin tomorrow. Because James tells us these, these things come from within. We are born in sin. We are sinful people by nature. And it's only by asking Jesus Christ to release us from that nature that we sin. We begin to see dimly, but we begin to see the power that he has in us to overcome the sin in our lives. Back to the temple. Well... I quoted about Psalm 137, the, the people eventually, for all their wrongdoings, and God punished them, took them off into exile. Then they were brought back, and they set up a temple, which was, I don't know, it wasn't quite the same. They couldn't really, didn't have the money or the wherewithal to, to rebuild a temple that, that on the um, scale of Solomon. But they did rebuild a temple, and, and people came back, but... In many respects, not all of them come back. Some of them had settled in their, in their land where they'd been taken as exiles and, and were quite happy to stay there. It wasn't as if there was a mass gathering of, of, of the Jews back into their own country. And over the years, uh, with all its ups and downs, um, it wasn't until towards the end of it, after the, the, when the Roman occupation, and one can't help but think that when Herod, because we've come into the age now when Jesus went into this temple on, on Palm Sunday, which was Herod's temple, it wasn't Solomon's temple, it was Herod's temple, and the Roman occupation, and, uh, you know, Herod was a nasty bit of work. Uh, this was the same Herod that killed all the children, all the boys under the age of two when Jesus was born. But he built a temple, or he'd started building a temple, a few years before Jesus started his ministry. And you remember by the time Jesus was beginning to, on his ministry, that the, the uh, priests and that, what Jesus talked about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days, they said, well, hey, hold on a minute, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And then even after that, even after Jesus um, finished his ministry and went back to his Father in heaven, they continued to rebuild the temple and it took them all together about 86 years to get it back. But this, this temple was on a par with Solomon's temple. They really, Herod had really gone to town and whether it was just in 
just to try and upset the Romans or whatever it was, or to try and placate the people uh, who were now under the, the rule of, uh, of Rome. Don't really know what his motive was. But he was prepared to receive all the glory for building it. And it's amazing, it took 87 years, uh, 86 years to complete. But it was a very little time after the final stone was placed that the Romans pulled it down brick by brick by brick until the prophecy of Jesus that there will be no stone left upon another came true. And the only piece of work of Herod's that is left standing to this day is the Wailing Wall. And even that is not part of the temple. It is a supporting wall uh, where Herod moved all the earth in and the earth works. So he needed the supporting walls to support the earth so that, he could build, so that he could build his temple. It was massive. They tell me that the circumference of the walls, including the outer court, of course, the temple was there and the outer court, um, was best part of a mile. Within the outer court, you could fit something like 200 to 250,000 people. It dominated is, uh, Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever been to York, but if you have, and you've been up perhaps Clifford's Tower, and you get a view of the city of York, and you can see how the Minster literally dominates the old city of York. Well, this was something on, well, on a bigger scale than that, really. People could see it for miles around. It's been said by historians that the sun would gleam on the gold and you could see it for miles. And it was that that the Jews worshipped. Because Jesus came to the temple... And what did he find? He found a cattle market, a sheep market. He found a convenience store where people could just buy their sacrifices on the grounds. And you can bet your life there was a few bob being made because they had to exchange any money that they bought with them into the temple shekel. So the exchange rate would have been exorbitant. And Herod and the chief priests were making a nice bit of money on the side. People thought they were buying their sacrifices within the temple grounds and that would make them uh, special. You know, <laughs> to call an old Jewish word that was very prevalent in the East End of London in my day, you can get your kosher. You can get your kosher sacrifices here if you buy them. Don't worry about the stalls outside. You can get your kosher stuff here inside. And people were prepared to pay through the news because they thought that they were getting a good deal. They were getting the real thing. And that's what Jesus found that the Jews, and in particular the Jewish leaders, had made of the temple where God was supposed to meet with his people. 
So he went in, slung a few of them out, I don't suspect. I mean, people often say, did he clear the temple? I don't think he did. I mean, this was a massive, this was a massive complex. So I think really we're seeing here with Jesus' actions of going into the temple. It's really just a, a shot across the bow. It's a warning. But I, can't, I don't think the Jews, well, the Jews certainly wouldn't have worried about that because you can bet your life most of them were back there the following day. But this was a warning. And after he'd done that, Jesus, he had to get away from this. He had to get away from this cacophony, this sound. You know, the, this, this basically took place in the court of Gentiles and these people were supposed to be able to come into this place to pray and to worship. This is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. But this act of Jesus, of slinging them out, was just a warning. And he went out and spent the night at Bethany. And then early in the morning, on his way back into Jerusalem, it tells us that Jesus was hungry. If we look down there into verse 18 of Matthew 21, Jesus was hungry. I wonder why he was hungry. The chances are he'd spent the, the night with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Although that's conjecture, we don't absolutely know, but we suspect it's probably true. So I'm sure Martha, being the hard worker that she was, and have found it too difficult to have knocked Jesus up a, a full Jewish or an egg sandwich. Spurgeon says that he suspected that Jesus had been up early in prayer to his father and then had simply made his way up to Jerusalem. <coughs> and who am I to argue with Spurgeon? But he was hungry. Don't you, know, don't you love it when you read the Gospels and these little things about Jesus come to light and, and people would just read over that, wouldn't they? He was hungry. What does it prove? That he was human. <coughs> that he was human. Yes, he was God. But he was human. He was hungry. Oh, and what a coincidence. What a coincidence, he felt hungry, but on the wall, the fig tree, and it was in full bloom. All the leaves were green. What does that indicate? Well, it should have indicated, when anything is in full leaf like that, that there's some kind of fruit on it. There should have been some figs on it. I won't go into the complications or, or the stories that, that, that surround this story and what could have happened what couldn't have happened, I mean, the fact is, at that time of year, there shouldn't have been a fig tree with leaves on it, let alone fruit on it, but there were. Jesus is setting up a living parable. 
He knew there would be no fruit on it, but this was an example. This was a story that could be told, and it's being told. He went to find the fruit that would satisfy his hunger and found none. A description of the temple. Full of leaves, looking absolutely wonderful, but producing no fruit. We really need to. It would be a worthless sermon, really, in some respects, if we didn't apply this to ourselves, to our chapel. And the frightening thing is, and it certainly frightened the disciples, is that when Jesus found no fruit, he destroyed the fig tree. And not only did, well, literally destroyed it, because it, you will never bear fruit again. And it never did. And it's what Jesus found in the temple. All the trimmings of religion. And no fruit. is a part that we should be fearful of. The disciples were amazed at the swiftness with which the fig tree withered. God's final judgment will be swift. He will come like a thief in the night. And if you are bearing no fruit, you will be shriveled up. You know, we preach this gospel, don't we? We preach the sermons. And the church has gone so much in way and we don't really hear too much preaching this day about the judgment of God. We hear about the love and the grace of God and that's very, very important. Don't get me wrong there. But he will come one day, Jesus will come and he will come as judge, just as he did on the fig tree, pronounced his judgment on it. It shriveled up, never to bear fruit, Okay. And hopefully this morning as we look at our lives, look at ours, not ourselves. Are you full of leaves? Do you really look good? 
people attracted to you? But are they attracted for the right reason? When they come and they find nothing, then you offer them nothing. The good news is this. Although the temple was destroyed and has never been built again, although if you see some of the new nonsense that's on YouTube at the moment, don't believe most of it. Because the temple was destroyed never to bear fruit again. Because Jesus didn't just come as the destroyer. He came as the replacement for the temple. He is now our centre of worship. He replaced the temple. He didn't leave us with nothing to worship. He didn't leave us with nothing to, to praise. He replaced the temple. And it's not in the temple that you will find the fullness of joy. It is in our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Last year, just after Christmas, when we normally go out and see if we can get cheap in the shops, my wife purchased an amaryllis. Now, most people purchase them before Christmas, so that they are as part of their Christmas decorations. <clears throat> but we don't. And it had two lovely buds on it. And it, when it came into full bloom, I have to say, I was quite impressed because I think altogether there was somewhere in the region of seven or eight, nine flowers on it. Beautiful plant, really grew, wonderful. And it stayed good until springtime-ish when I took it out into the garden and just left it up against the garage. Thought nothing more of it. But they're round about I don't know, towards the end of September, October time, suddenly some leaves started to spring up through the earth. And I thought to myself, this is handy. It will save us buying another one this year, won't it? So I tended it a little bit, fed it, and the leaves started to grow. And it looked like, oh, hello. I said, well, we will bring this in. I said, we'll nurture this and look after it, keep it warm. And we did. And the leaves continued to grow. And they grew so well, I ended up putting a couple of stays in there and tying a bit of string across so that the leaves didn't flop. And I came down one morning, and all the leaves hadn't just lent out, they sort of... So he went back out in the garden. 
I didn't curse it. And it's all right. I mean, I didn't, I didn't do a Jesus and curse this plant. But it promised so much. It promised so much. But it didn't deliver. It didn't bear fruit. So it's no good. How do we bear fruit? How do we bear fruit? It's easy being, it's easy, well, it's even easy giving the appearance of being a Christian, isn't it? You know, you, you get a lot of, you get, get so much religion. You come to church on Sundays. Uh, you attend a meeting or two during the week. Um, yes, you, you look at your, well, some of you look at your prayer diaries and, and do those sort of things. It's easy to give that appearance. of green leaves, of being in full bloom. But what about the meat? What about the fruit? Is it there? And the only way that it can be in there is if you have asked Jesus Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit to indwell you. That is what becoming a Christian is. I mean, I was brought up on a thing is you give, you know, would you like to give your life? I was asked that one night, would you like to give your life to Jesus? You can't give your life to Jesus. He already owns it. He brought you into the world. He will take you out of this world. What you do is you ask Jesus into this life. As the Apostle Paul says, and I hope you can say the same this morning, it is no longer me that lives. It is Christ. It is Jesus who lives in me. That's how you'll stop being just a lovely green bush and become a lovely flower or a nice amaryllis with five or six and you'll, you will be pleasing to the world. That flower was pleasing. I'm not really a flower person. I'm not a gardener. I struggle to grow grass. But that flower was pleasing to me. It was beautiful. And that is how you should be to the world. That is what God intended for the Jewish nation, to be pleasing to the world, to be his representatives on earth. And they turned him down, regardless of what he'd done for them. They forgot him and worshipped other things. And today... There certainly isn't a Jewish nation that God set up. And regardless of what's going on there now, people say, oh, the Jews came back. No, they didn't. The United Nations put them in a bit of ground. And what about the aliens? The aliens that they were supposed to welcome to the temple. They become inward looking. It was our God and we're keeping him. Not that they did. They didn't want other people moving in. They didn't want outreach. Give it some thought this morning.
Are you a lovely green bush? Pleasing to the eye. But when it comes to June and July and August, are you still just a green bush? And maybe you're not even, I don't know your personal circumstances, you may not even be a green bush. You may not be anything. You, you, you may not know your, know your knowledge of God and, and, and Jesus. What's that got to do with anything? Well, you need to hear God's voice calling because he is the, the king of this world. He is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He loves this world, but he won't have people destroying it. He won't let people... He doesn't want people going astray. But he needed to do something about it. And the only person who could do anything about the sin... And the recklessness in people's lives was to send the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice that satisfied God. And the only way to come and find God is through Jesus Christ. I know it's Colston's castle, but the only difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world is the fact that we have a living God, a living saviour. We don't worship gold crosses, we don't worship silver this or bronze that or wooden this or wooden that. We have a living saviour who is now seated at God's right hand interceding for you and for me. We'll knock the last one on the head because I've spoken for far too long is not unusual and if you're the first if it's the first time that you're here this morning I'm not here every week it does get better <laughs> let's bow our heads